Hey, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. This is Joe Cotter with my friend, Dr. Susanna Greer. Hey, Susanna. Hey, Joe. Got something good for you sleepyheads today. Everybody sleeps. Not everybody sleeps well. And this guest, she's a new grantee at ACS. We just funded her. And her work is about sleep-disordered breathing and cancer risk. Um, and cancer mortality. Talking about Dr. Melissa Bates, she's Assistant Professor of Health and Human Physiology and Pediatric Neonatology, and the Director of the Leukemia Molecular Epidemiological Resource at the Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Iowa. So Susanna, this was really cool. Oh my gosh, Dr. Bates is so incredibly impressive. Her research is focused in multiple myeloma, which is a tough cancer. It is difficult to treat, there is no cure. So one of the things we think a lot about are risk factors for multiple myeloma. And the one that we know that is modifiable is obesity. So modifiable meaning something that we have some control over. And as Joe said, this podcast is all about sleeping and disruptions to sleep. So one of the things that happens to people, lots of people who are obese is they have trouble with sleep have a condition called sleep apnea. And I'll just give you one tiny tidbit from what Melissa shared with us today. In their clinic, they found that 90% of patients who have multiple myeloma, either the pre-malignant, so the non-cancerous form of the disease, but where things are not looking great, all the way to multiple myeloma, 90% have sleep apnea. So it is a shocking statistic. So Melissa is going to lead you down a pathway of understanding how she got there. And it starts from her experiences in pediatrics, where sleep apnea is a huge challenge. So you are going to love this. This podcast gave me such hope on this beautiful day. Um, And the last thing Melissa said was, when she thinks about cancer patients, she wants them to know that she thinks about them every day that she is grateful to be a partner with cancer patients, um, and she is so motivated by her work. And now I'm incredibly motivated to get back into it today. This is a wonderful podcast. Hi, Melissa. It's so nice to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. We are delighted. I'd like to just help our audience to understand, because times are, are different now. Can you maybe share with us where you are and what your situation is right now? <laughs> Absolutely. I uh, am actually, I'm at home, like so many of us are right now, um, when everything COVID-related uh, uh, started. Um, we moved uh, my home office, or we moved my office into our home. Um, so my husband and I are sort of crammed uh, into his den together with uh, another little desk that uh, our, our kids use throughout the day. Um, we've got a family of 10, so uh, there's a lot of us at home right now. And so a lot of my day is uh, spent sort of juggling working and being a mom and homeschooling kids right now. So uh, it's, it's a busy time. Wow, I thought I had it hard with a husband and child and two dogs. They're all currently tied up in a closet upstairs. So I'll be interested to hear what you've done with your nine <laughs> members. And, and you're right. These are 
extraordinary times and we're all doing the very best we can. I'm just grateful that you're going to take a little time out to talk to us. So let's let's dive in a little bit. Your lab studies links between something that's called in the literature sleep disordered breathing and cancer mortality or you know, your, your risk of dying from your cancer. So help us to understand that first part a bit. What is sleep disordered breathing and Maybe can we call that sleep apnea? And what happens? Is it common? Help us to understand. That's a, that's a great question. So sleep disordered breathing is an umbrella term for uh, disorders where when you go to sleep, um, your breathing is not enough to keep your body oxygenated and to help you clear metabolic waste products like CO2. Uh, sleep apnea, or when your breathing actually stops, is one major component of that. So a lot of times those terms are, are used pretty interchangeably. Um, it's becoming appreciated now as being tremendously common. You know, we thought 10 years ago this might be something that impacts 4 or 5% of the population. We're now learning by um, screening better and, and listening more closely to our patients that this may impact up to half of the population, uh, half of the aging population. So it's tremendously common and tremendously underappreciated. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's kind of scary um, <laughs> that, first of all, your description is a little scary that we go to sleep and our breathing is not enough to clear out everything that needs to be cleared out. And you mentioned CO2. That's one of the things that's easy for us to wrap our mind around, that we need to breathe out those waste products. And that what's happening when we go to sleep just doesn't take care of that. So that first part is a little sketchy. And the second part, <laughs> that so many of us have this. Okay, so... So we've set up a, a challenging situation, but on the good side that we are getting better at screening and understanding and treating these sleeping disorders. Um, so I really want you to help us make a big leap next. And that is how can this sleep disordered breathing, this umbrella term that you use, how is that possibly linked to cancer and to cancer risk, how could one impact the other? Well, that's a, that's a tremendous question. Um, you know, my uh, my venture into um, cancer as a field is is relatively recent compared to a lot of my colleagues here at Iowa. Um, my training is actually in pediatrics, and apnea, or when you stop breathing is a huge pop, a huge problem in that population as well. So when babies are born prematurely, the centers in their brain that uh, cause you to breathe just in and out regularly throughout the day are not well developed. And um, so those babies often have periods where they stop breathing or they have apneas. And we know from you know 10 years of research in that field that that has uh, tremendous effects on their physiology in a lifelong way. Well, how does that relate to cancer, right? So the way that that relates is that the biggest stress of not breathing like that are the changes in the oxygen in your blood. 
maintaining oxygen delivery is really critical to your to, to the functioning of, of your body at all levels. And so when you have these periods where you stop breathing and then you start breathing again, you're having huge, huge swings in the oxygen in, in your blood that's being delivered to your tissue. Now, how does that impact cancer directly is, is a, a, a great question and a relatively new question. I became interested in this field um, when I was training in Wisconsin and some of my colleagues there did a study where they uh, looked at 1,200 state employees and they screened them for sleep apnea. And then they followed them for 20 years and looked at, uh, looked at what happened to them. And one of the biggest findings of their study was that if you had moderate to severe sleep apnea, you were five to eight times more likely to die of cancer than if you didn't. And you were you were five to eight times as likely to develop a cancer. So there's clear evidence from, you know, this cohort of people that having these changes in your oxygen at night while you sleep drives cancer and drives the probability that you'll die from your cancer. And what we're really excited about now in our research is to say, you know, number one, to answer your question, how does that happen? And number two is a lot of the patients who, who were in that study were dying of solid tumor cancers because they honestly tend to be more prevalent. And so we want to look now and say, how, how does sleep apnea impact blood cancers, which, um, you know, may, may be more exposed even to the changing oxygen environment that sleep apnea causes. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. If I understood correctly, so make sure we got this. What we know, as Oprah would say, what we know for sure is that changes in oxygenation or in the levels of oxygen in the blood absolutely happen to us when we are undergoing apneas. And you mentioned these are happening in pediatric patients. We certainly know they happen in many of us throughout our lives those changes in the levels of oxygen are going to impact the way our body functions. One of the most immediate impacts is going to be on the blood and the different cells that reside in the blood. And we don't know exactly why there is a link between these changes of oxygenation and cancers, but there certainly seem to be really strong evidence. So is that a reasonable summary of how we got from pediatrics all the way to uh, an interest in thinking about cancer and specifically maybe cancer of the blood? Absolutely. You know, one of the things we think about just in general is that oxygen is good and it is, you know, it's um, uh, evil viable called it the fire of life. We absolutely need oxygen to survive. But we also have a little bit of a Goldilocks problem with it as a species in that we need the oxygen to be 20.9% in the air and, and for that to translate to an oxygen level that's appropriate in our lungs. And when the oxygen is too high or it's too low or if it swings back and forth like it does in an apnea, that's very hard for our, our body to deal with. And it induces a lot of changes uh, to our physiology 
that are not particularly helpful and not particularly healthy in the long run. And so that's really what our lab is interested in understanding is how that translates to increased cancer risk and poor outcomes for patients. So let's let's move then to cancers of the blood, because I think we can all understand, and I love your Goldilocks analogy that too much oxygen, not great, too little, not great, changes, I mean, just has to be just right. So what happens when it's not just right? And as you indicated, for many individuals, there are periods of our life where when we sleep, the level is not just right. So one of the questions that you are asking is how might that impact cancers that form in the blood, which are going to be immediately impacted by those changes in oxygen levels. There are a lot of different types of cancers that develop in blood cells. The one that you are particularly interested in is multiple myeloma. Let's just level set a little bit. Can you talk to us a little bit about multiple myeloma? Why why were you interested beyond the fact that it's a cancer of the blood, but is is there something else about multiple myeloma that makes it from a clinical perspective especially intriguing? So is it common? Is it curable? Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, it's actually interesting that you started the podcast with a question about my family um, because really getting into multiple myeloma as a research area was a family journey for me. Um, my husband is a hematologist and multiple myeloma researcher. Um, by by background. And uh, he, in 2014, was writing a review, uh, an article uh, for the scientific literature about modifiable risk, can- risk factors for multiple myeloma and wanted me to do some writing, you know, based on my background in, um, in sleep apnea and pediatrics about uh, obesity as a potentially modifiable risk factor. And uh, I didn't know much about multiple myeloma back then in in 2014, but I told one of my aunts what I was working on with my husband and her face just just lit up and uh, she revealed that um, my grandmother had actually died of multiple myeloma. I didn't, you know, I I didn't, didn't know this. I was a little girl when she passed, but it just led me to to really start thinking more about the patients specifically that suffer from this cancer. And I was able to learn that multiple myeloma is still an incurable cancer. It's the second most common blood cancer. It's one of the top 10 causes of cancer deaths for women here in Iowa, where I am. And I really became passionate in understanding more about these patients. I also became passionate about understanding more about what is it about the field and what is it about multiple myeloma that is makes it so hard to treat and has has you know led it to still be considered incurable. And one of the things I became really interested in is the fact that there are not a lot of great animal models for multiple myeloma. Um, in some of the other cancers, Um, If you take a gene and you mutate it and you put it into an animal, you can recreate a fairly faithful model of the cancer. But that's not the case in, in multiple myeloma. The plasma cells, which create antibodies that help you fight infection, that are the cell that is impacted by multiple myeloma and becomes malignant, are very resistant to 
becoming malignant simply through accumulating genetic mutations. And I thought that was really uh, fascinating. And, and it led me, you know, in meditating about some of this to think, well, maybe there's something else, some other kind of spark or secret sauce that you need to start the disease process going. And that's what really bridged the link then between that particular patient population that I had had learned about and this research that came out of Wisconsin where they showed the link between cancer overall and, and sleep. I don't think that most of us think about animal models for cancer all the time, but but you're right. In the lab, when we're going to generate an animal model, oftentimes we're doing that through manipulating genes, making mutations, taking genes out, just trying to mimic the clinical situation. And and you're right, that, that doesn't exist really for multiple myeloma. So it seems that it led you down this trail of thinking that perhaps there's something else that has to kick off this cancer. And you mentioned a modifiable risk factor. So something that we might be exposed to but it's modifiable, it might change. So something in the environment um, or something that we're eating or something about our body type. So I guess I, I wanna ask the million dollar question, is, is multiple myeloma then associated with risk factors that do actually link to sleep disruption? Exactly, and that to me is why this is such a potentially exciting field. So many of the risk factors for multiple myeloma are not modifiable. Um, your sex, whether you're male or female, uh, race, uh, how old you are, you know, despite my best efforts to keep the clock at, at bay, we can't change how we age. But the one modifiable risk factor that is well linked to multiple myeloma is obesity. Obesity is also one of the top risk factors for sleep apnea. And so that was how we initially uh, uh, proposed that these two different diseases might actually be linked and interrelated is that um, obesity predisposes individuals to sleep apnea and sleep apnea may then drive some of the changes that are associated with multiple myeloma. And that was really based on some very interesting animal work um, showing that uh, a high fat diet or simply gaining weight, increasing body mass is not very good at catalyzing um, uh, mutated plasma cells to cause disease. What we were able to do in collaboration with folks here at Iowa is to uh, take mutated plasma cells that are derived from uh, a mouse line that typically don't grow and cause disease in animals, and then take those animals, expose them to conditions that mimic sleep apnea and show that when the animals are in this simulated sleep apnea, those mutated plasma cells engraft and grow very well and cause a disease in the mouse that looks a lot like sleep apnea, or I'm sorry, it looks a lot like multiple myeloma. So oh, now, wow. what, now what we're doing um, is uh, we've we've taken our work now and we've moved it into preliminary studies in our clinic and we've begun screening um, every patient with myeloma or its pre-malignant uh, phase called um, 
monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or MGUS. We're screening all of the patients that come to the Holden Cancer Center here for sleep apnea. And we're finding that more than 90% of these patients have evidence of sleep disordered breathing at night. That's fascinating to me. That's, that's double the incidence that we would expect to find in the general population. Wow, that's incredible. It's all incredible. So I just want to take our listeners back and make sure we understand the story that you told because it's a fin- it's a fascinating twist of going from observation to molecular and cellular manipulation in the lab to a clinical setting. So you indicated to us that you and other researchers has had a, had a really hard time of doing what we would normally do to induce cancer in an animal model in the case of multiple myeloma, which is that you would take the cells that are the cancerous cell, which in this case is a plasma cell, a type of white blood cell, you would mutate those cells and then in the lab and then put them back in an animal, but a cancer wouldn't form. So was that part basically true? No cancer in that case or or not mimicking the human situation. Okay. And that even if you were to go a step further and say, it looks like one risk factor for multiple myeloma in humans is obesity. So what if we did that to mice? What if we fed these mice a high fat diet and then gave them mutated, so changed plasma cells, would a cancer form? And what you indicated was that really didn't happen in the way that you thought it would. Mm-hmm. But then if you did all three things, you changed the plasma cells, mutated them to make a cancer in the lab, and you fed mice a high fat diet, and then you conditioned the mice in a way that resembled disordered sleep or sleep apnea, then you got multiple myeloma that resembled the clinical situation in humans and mice. Is that about right? Well, that's actually the coolest part is that we don't even have to use the high fat diet component. All we have to do is take the mice, condition them in an environment that's like sleep apnea. We put them in these um, uh, chambers where we can control the oxygen environment and we can cause it to cycle throughout the day when mice would normally be sleeping and then inject them with this mutated plasma cell line and those cells go to the bone marrow. That's part of me. That's what's so interesting is they, they don't grow everywhere. They grow preferentially in the bone marrow where multiple myeloma also grows. They cause the mice to develop fractures and they, and, and ultimately um, terminal disease, which is what we see in our patients. Wow. It's absolutely fascinating. And then because of your observations, you began to really look at your clinical population and to ask questions about patients who were either diagnosed with the pre-malignant form of multiple myeloma or a disease that had progressed to multiple myeloma. And you said, do they seem to have sleep apnea? And you said 90% of the time, the answer was yes. That's amazing. Yeah, I think that's that was really the moment that I knew we were on to something really exciting and that I needed to to keep down this track was um, we, we started these human studies in our patients trying to see if they have sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing at night. And what we we found this one individual who had the worst sleep apnea I've ever seen in my life. And 
uh, I went to his physician and said, you know, this this individual needs some some follow up. And my colleague told me that this person has is so fatigued during the day that they're actually having trouble coming to the clinic. They're so tired that they're having trouble participating in their own care. So, you know, does sleep apnea drive cancer? Does it initiate cancer? We're still working to figure that out. What I think is not controversial is that people who have sleep apnea, regardless of other diagnoses, experience fatigue and, uh, and other poor outcomes that really limit their ability to engage on a daily basis. And so if you take that now and translate it to somebody who's, who's battling cancer, it's almost like you know, trying to, to fight with one hand tied behind your back. You just don't have every, all of your tools and, and all, of your, all of your abilities at your disposal. So I think this is an area where we could really, really help some people. It certainly seems like it. I, and I know that some of this is controversial and early, but that's what makes it exciting. But would you just leave us with an understanding about how, how do you feel about sleep apnea representing a therapeutic target for not only blood cancers like multiple myeloma, but other tumors? Yeah, I think that there's no, no doubt in my mind that sleep apnea itself is an important therapeutic target. It's, it's a major public health concern. It's a major public health concern in our aging population. What I'm hoping that our work will do is to give my clinician colleagues some understanding of how prevalent this is as a problem in cancer patients and help us understand the ways that treating underlying sleep apnea can help patients battle their cancer better. Does it make their drugs more effective to have their sleep apnea treated? Does it make their stamina and quality of life better to have their sleep apnea treated, you know, in concert with their cancer treatment? I think that this is a really potentially a tool that has not integrated itself yet into cancer care that could be really of benefit to these patients. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. It's just incredibly uplifting and motivating and just the bright light many of us need right now. I, I don't want to let you go without asking just a couple more questions. And one is that I know you had a good thing happen during what has been a really challenging time for us, all of us. And that is that you were funded by the American Cancer Society. And we're so excited to have you as a part of our family now. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about how that funding might impact your career? Well, there's no doubt that ACS funding already has, has catalyzed my career. I was really fortunate when I started down this path to have an early investigator ACS award through the IRG mechanism and was really lucky that people took, were willing to take a risk on somebody who didn't have a background in cancer and had kind of a crazy idea. And uh, that has, has led to a very fulfilling research area for for my my group. After that, I was really fortunate to be invited to several events at the Hope Lodge to talk about our work and ways that we can engage patients better in our work and meeting people, patients in particular who work with and volunteer with ACS was so gratifying and motivating 
So at, at each level, my interactions with the ACS have been transformative in my career. And I'm hopeful now with having this new uh, research scholar grant that it's not only going to continue to catalyze my research, but it's going to allow me to train the next generation of researchers to be thinking about these questions. Well, we're so excited and, and lucky to have you with us. And, you know, sometimes the biggest risks pay off in a big way. And I think that's definitely true with you and your really innovated, innovative area. Um, all right. I just have one more question for you today, Melissa. So many of our listeners are cancer patients uh, or they are survivors or they are folks who are caregivers. Is there a message you would like to share with this audience in particular? I think what I want patients and caregivers and survivors to know most of all is that uh, me and my team think about you every single day and that you're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're doing this work. Um, we are so grateful to be able to be partners with you in your journey and are more motive, motivated than ever to create tools and resources for you uh, to use in, you know, probably one of the biggest battles of your life. All right, Melissa, if I needed any motivation to be my best self today and always, that was it. Thank you so much. We're <laughs> grateful pleasure. for you. Bye.